You're listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. For our Bible reading today, anyone that would like to read along as I speak the words, you'll find it on page 8 in your Bibles. And this is the story of the creation of the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the faith of all the earth. Thanks be to God. All right. Good morning again, everyone. So I want to I start off this morning with an announcement that should come as good news to some of you. Um, today's message contains no talk of sex, incest, slavery, genocide, there might be a little genocide actually, um, but other forms of gratuitous violence. There's none of that this week. And if, if, um, if that disclaimer confuses you, you've probably missed the last couple of sermons. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've been looking at some really intense stuff together uh, these last few weeks. It's been kind of crazy. Uh, the book of Genesis is loaded with some really explicit content, especially once you start to peel back all the layers and actually dig into what's really going on in the text. Um, Our Bibles are basically like a really ancient, divinely inspired version of Game of Thrones or something like that. Um, But if if sex and violence is your thing, go on our website, brockportfirstbaptist.org, listen to the last couple sermons, you'll like that. Um, But today we're going to keep it clean with the Tower of Babel. Now this, this is a classic, this is an awesome story. Uh, The Tower of Babel has been a favorite Bible story of mine since I was a kid. Um, And I want to just take a few minutes up front to kind of marvel at this story together, to marvel um, at what is going on here, uh, because this story is being told in a really amazing way. On a fundamental level, this is a story about language, and the authors of this story are having fun with language in telling this story. There's a lot of puns in this story. Um, Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for nonsense or confusion. Babel also happens to be where we get the English word babel. 
Hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. I uh, hope that's obvious. But there's something even bigger going on here, um, bigger than fancy language or clever puns. The very structure of this story is amazing. And I really, I wrestled this week with how to illustrate this to you all because it's the kind of thing where you almost have to like sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil and outline the story and it helps to speak Hebrew a little bit. So it's really, doesn't work that well in a sermon, but we're going to give it a shot. Uh, We're going to walk through this story together, looking at the structure, and hopefully by the end this will all make sense. In the Tower of Babel, each part of the story has a parallel somewhere else. Uh, The first line of the story has a phrase that gets repeated in a different way in the last line of the story. Then in the second line of the story, there's a phrase that gets repeated in a different way in in the second last line. Third line, third last line, fourth line, on and on, into this really amazing structure that we're going to look at together. And it's going to be on the screens to try to illustrate this. To pull it off, the font's going to be kind of small. Uh, So it might actually be helpful to open up your pew Bibles to page 8 and follow along as we go. I'll give you a second for those of you who want to pull those out. All right, Tower of Babel. So the story starts off in verse 1 with the whole earth had one language. One language on the earth. Then if you jump to the end of the story in verse 9... It says the Lord confused the language of the earth. So we have our first parallel. One language on the earth contrasted with a confusing of the language on the, on the earth at the end. Do you, see, do you see that parallel there? Okay, this is going to get a little crazy. The next one's harder to see in English. Um, in Hebrew, these next two phrases are almost identical except for like one or two words. Uh, but to make it make sense, English translators have to tweak it a little. So you'll just have to trust me on this one. But in verse 3, we find the phrase, and they said to one another, referring to the people of Babel. But if you jump down to about the middle of verse 7, you find, and they will not understand one another, or and they will not say to each other. They said to one another in verse 3, and then they will not say to one another in verse 7. That's another parallel. Now jump back to where we just were in verse 3. The very next phrase, they said to one another, Come, let us make. You see that phrase? Come, let us make. Now, if you jump back down to the very beginning of verse 7, so we're kind of moving closer to the middle, it says, come, let us confuse. What's interesting here is the Hebrew word for make is benah, and the Hebrew word for confuse is balah. Benah and balah. So they sound the same. The authors are being punny. This would have killed 2,500 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> the, the people of Babel want to benah a tower, but they can't because God belawed their language. That's a, that's a rim shot. This is funny. This should have been funny. Long time ago. And the parallels continue. Um, in the middle of the passage, we get two. Two last parallels right in a row. In verse 4, the people say, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. So you have two phrases there. Let us build for ourselves in a city and a tower. Then in verse 5, we get the city and the tower which mortals had built. So you get the mortals built, a city and a tower, the city and the tower that mortals built. Do you see those parallels? Yeah, so if you put all this together, 
all these little connections, the passage looks, looks something like this. It's almost like an arrow or a sideways triangle. It kind of starts on one end, it goes toward the middle, and then it comes back. Now, what I find amazing about this is when you read the passage, you don't notice this at all. Like, how many people saw this as we were reading? How many people were like, oh, this, they already said this? N- no one, right? The passage just flows. There's a lot of intentionality here in the wording, but it feels natural. The authors are blurring the lines between poetry and prose. Now, an important question to ask with something like this is, is, just, is this just about style? Did the authors of Genesis just feel like putting a little more effort into this one? Were they having like a particularly creative day? Or is there something more going on here? Is there a reason for this structure? Is the style part of the message? I mentioned that this story is structured like a triangle, kind of. But another way to do it is to cut it right down the middle. And then it looks more like a mirror. It's almost like the first half is reflected in the second half of the story, and that actually fits really well with what's happening in the story. We have two halves. We have two perspectives. The first half of this passage through verse 4 is told from the perspective of the people of Babel, the people who are building this tower, reaching into the heavens to make a name for themselves. But the second half of the story, beginning in verse 5, is told from God's perspective. It's like we're getting the city's view of itself, and then we're getting a more accurate reflection through the eyes of God. I mentioned a few minutes ago that Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for nonsense or confusion, but Babel also sounds an awful lot like Babylon, and that's intentional. Now, if you haven't been here for most of this series, um, you wouldn't have heard this. We've talked about Babylon a lot, so this will be review for some of you, but it's worth touching on again. Babylon was a global empire that crushed the ancient kingdom of Judah, the people who wrote this story. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, and they took the Jews who survived, and they put them in exile in Babylon. And it was in that context, in this small community of survivors, that the book of Genesis took its final written form. So these stories have some very important connections to socio-political realities that were happening at the time. And Babel looks a lot like Babylon. It's a great city full of tall towers with one language and one culture, that's trying to make a name for themselves. This changes our perspective on the passage a little bit, at least it does for me. Oftentimes when we read this story, uh, it feels like it's going backwards, like the creation of different languages is a punishment. It's like, oh man, if it could just be like it was back in Babel, if there could just be one language and one culture, there'd be peace, kumbaya, wouldn't that be great? But for the people who told this story 2,500 years ago, the exact opposite was the case. For generations, the Israelites had their own culture and their own language, their own kingdom, their own temple. 
And the same was true for all their neighbors, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, all these people groups we read about in the Old Testament. They had their own culture and their own language until Babylon came to town. Babylon was something the world had never seen before. It was a global superpower, arguably the first. Babylon took over all of the known world at the time, and the Babylonians expanded and protected their empire by swallowing up all these other little kingdoms, these other little cultures, and imposing one culture, one language, their language. When Babylon conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, it was the destruction of a culture. The people of Jerusalem effectively stopped being Jewish and became Babylonian, at least in the eyes of Babylon. They were now part of the empire. And that meant they were expected to speak the Babylonian language, learn the Babylonian customs, send their kids to Babylonian schools, and worship Babylonian gods. If you think back to what many of our ancestors did to the Native Americans when we showed up here, crushing these ancient cultures, these long-standing cultures, and imposing our own English language, English culture, you have a sense of what Babylon did to these people. For the people who first told this story, the reality of having one language and one culture was very real, and it was hell. And the end of this story, when God scatters the languages and confuses all the culture, that would not have been seen as a tragedy. That was actually what the people were longing for. So the whole way many of us tend to look at this story as moving backwards is precisely the opposite of what the authors are trying to say, which kind of makes sense because this story is a critique of empire and we're all living in one. The United States is way bigger than Babylon. We are way stronger than Babylon. We have spread our language and our culture further than the Babylonians ever could have imagined. And so as citizens of empire, we struggle with a story like this. This hits us kind of hard. Our first instinct might be to get defensive. Uh, you know, our empire is not like Babylon. We're a good empire. They were a bad empire. But what if instead of getting defensive, we actually listened to the story, to see what it has to tell us, to see what it's saying, to see what this story who's being told by people who were crushed by empires has to say to us who are citizens of an empire. Then we might learn something. Um, and I've highlighted three takeaways. There's probably more than three, but three is a good number, and I don't want to be here all afternoon. So we're going to look at three, three takeaways from this story. The first, God affirms diversity. The various languages and cultures and people groups of our world were created by God. And so we should be very suspicious of efforts to spread our particular culture and our particular language and replace other cultures with our own. As a people who believe in the Bible, we should think twice about efforts to forcibly assimilate other people to our way of life. 
Growing up, I heard a lot of my family members uh, complain whenever they overheard someone speaking another language. Um, I grew up in a predominantly Latino neighborhood in Allentown, Pennsylvania, represent. Um, and so it was very normal, like every day, you heard people speaking Spanish. But the reaction of my older, my older family members was always to complain. It was always like, why are they speaking Spanish? Why can't they learn English? Now, most people in my family weren't Christians, so maybe we can let them off the hook. I don't know. But as Christians, as people of the Bible, as people who have this story in our sacred scriptures, we should realize that other languages were put there by God. And this desire to see other people adopt our own language, it's really a desire to remake people in our own image, which is a problem because according to Genesis, they've already been created in the image of God. So what are we saying? Throughout the opening chapters of Genesis, God has been commanding human beings to fill the earth. That's actually the very first command we have from God, be fruitful and multiply. But time and time again, the people in Genesis keep refusing. They keep screwing up. And so when God scatters the languages, God is finally fulfilling this command we've had since the dawn of humanity. Our diversity is divinely ordained and not a problem to be fixed. So that's one takeaway. Another is that God exposes the truth about empire. Empires aren't bad. They're not all bad. Uh, Empires do great things. Civilization is moved forward by empire. economies, production, all that stuff gets elevated by empires. But empires are very self-obsessed. They're obsessed with their own greatness. They project strength at all times. Empires are dedicated to advancing their own interests and making their name great. But what this story shows us brilliantly with these two halves is that all that talk of greatness masks an insecurity lying just beneath the surface. Empires project strength because they know at any moment things could change. The tides of history could shift. God could act, and it could all fall into chaos. The story begins with the people of Babel really projecting strength. They're banding together around a common cause to build a monument to their own greatness. But by the end of the story, the monument lies in rubble, The city is in chaos, and the people are scattered across the earth. And all the Israelite refugees say, hooray. (laughs) The people of Babel build this tower. They're trying to reach into the heavens because they want to be like God, which that should sound familiar. That's the same error Adam and Eve made before them, trying to be like God. And then when we get God's perspective on the story, it's actually kind of hilarious. Um, God has to come down from heaven to see this tower. It's like God's like, what are those human beings up to down there? Oh, they're building a little tower. I can can almost see it from here. Not only would that have been really ironic and really funny back then, it would have been super sacrilegious. The Babylonians were known for building ziggurats. They were these kind of tiered towers, kind of like what's on the front of your bulletin. Um, And ziggurats were temples. 
They were tall. They were the tallest buildings most people at the time had ever seen. And it was believed that to stand at the top of the ziggurat was to literally stand in the presence of the gods. So when the Israelites tell this story and reveal that the, those towers can't even be seen from heaven, and that they're actually an affront to the one true God of Israel, them's fighting words. That could get you killed. But that's what it looks like sometimes to speak truth to power. It's about reflecting the reality of empire. Third takeaway from this story is that God calls us to live faithfully in the midst of empire. Part of that is telling stories like these, revealing the truth, speaking out when we see injustice that the empire would rather ignore. But an equally crucial part of that, living faithfully, is seeking the peace of the empire. You probably didn't see that one coming. And that's because this idea doesn't really show up in this story, but it comes later in the book of Jeremiah. And I think it's essential. We have to hold these two things together, seeking peace and critique. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. Um, he was one of the exiles who was taken from Jerusalem into Babylon, and part of Jeremiah's ministry was walking alongside his fellow Israelites and helping them interpret what had happened, interpret this traumatic experience. And here's the advice that Jeremiah gave to his fellow exiles in Babylon. It'll be on the screens. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear, bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its peace you will find your peace. The exile lasted 70 years. The bulk of the people who were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon never went home again. And so Jeremiah's advice to them is very practical. Get comfortable. Keep living faithfully. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep your traditions as best you can in this foreign land and seek the peace of that land. Empires are not our enemy. They're our mission field. Our job is not to tear down and destroy the empires of this world, but to be beacons of God's love and God's peace in the midst of whatever empire we find ourselves. Sometimes that means speaking hard truths, advocating for the least of these, exposing lies when we see them. But in all of that, and in all we do, we are called first and foremost to seek peace, to be a blessing to those around us, to seek the welfare of our city or our village, wherever we find ourselves. Living faithfully in the midst of empire is not a call to retreat. It's a call to engage, to build friendships, organize vigils, participate in marches, stand against violence, 
Advocate for the powerless. Show hospitality to strangers. Put our skills to use. Make things, build things, create things, fix things. And in all we do, proclaim the good news of God's kingdom and God's love. That's what it looks like to live faithfully as God's people in the midst of empire. That's what I learned from this story. And it's in that spirit that we are called to expose the towers of Babel that populate our world today. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.